Okay, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Heavenly Father, thank you for this reading of this great psalm. Thank you for this reading of this great song. Thank you, O Father, that you have been pleased to give us uh, this great book that we have that has been so comforting to so many over the centuries. And we too, as we embark on this particular chapter of church history, uh, we find comfort in it as well. So Father, we ask that you would teach us from these words that, Father, you would apply these words to us, that uh, we would glean from this reading all that you have for us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. This morning we celebrate what the church has historically referred to as uh, Palm Sunday. And uh, the name, as many of you know, originates from the palm branches that are uh, placed down before Jesus as he's descending down the Mount of Olives into uh, the city of Jerusalem in what uh, we call his triumphal entry. And uh, a little history behind this, uh, a friend, if we, if we kind of back up just a short period of time before Christ descent down the Mount of Olives, we're told of a story in the Gospel of John where a friend of uh, Jesus, Lazarus, becomes very ill and his sisters actually call uh, for Jesus. Uh, his uh, Lazarus condition is uh, uh, certainly dire and they call for Jesus to come and, and to heal him. And Jesus actually purposely delays and Lazarus dies. And he's put in the tomb, and he's in the tomb for four days by the time Jesus arrives. Uh, but Jesus orders the stone of the tomb removed, and you know the story. He commands Lazarus to come out of the tomb. And Lazarus obeys that command and comes walking out of that tomb with his grave clothes uh, wrapped around him. Now, as we can imagine, uh, that created quite a stir. People come from all over the place in order to, to see Lazarus and to see this sight for themselves. 
So there's a lot of people in the area of Bethany that are gathered around and flocking around this, this great miracle so that eventually many of these folks follow Jesus down the Mount of Olives. And the word gets out in Jerusalem because people are, are pilgrimaging in to Jerusalem to observe the Passover so that the Jerusalem is swollen with, with people. They catch wind that Jesus is on his way down the Mount of Olives and a large crowd rushes out up on the hill, eventually converging with the crowd that's following Jesus to where we have this massive crowd. And Luke tells us in chapter 19, verses 37 to 38, that the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, this is one of the many passages of Scripture that teach us about the kingship of Christ. And that's been a subject of study for us on Wednesday evenings for quite some time. And I don't think, I, I think I'm very safe in saying that that's been quite a blessing for us, hasn't it? I know it's been a blessing uh, for me, going over the material and over the material, the material we've been using has come from James Fisher, and uh, I've constantly had to keep going over it and over it in order to prepare for these uh, Wednesday night Bible studies, and each time it's such a blessing to study the multifaceted uh, doctrine of Christ's kingship. And uh, this has had me thinking about Psalm 2. You know, as Christmas approaches each year, as Easter approaches each year, I don't mind sharing with you. I often think, okay, uh, where are we going this year? Where are we going this year? And, you know, I've, I've preached on Luke 19. I don't know how many times I've preached on some of these passages. I'm, I'm always looking for new, uh, new and fresh ways to uh, really tell the same story. And each time as I've thought about Palm Sunday, I was thinking about Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is constantly in my mind so here we are you before I begin expounding on the psalm I I should say a couple of words of introduction about it I mean first psalm 2 really shares in an introductory role in the Psalter last week we looked at psalm 1 and we saw that psalm 1 is introductory it introduces us to the entire uh, body of psalms all 150 of them and we saw in it that it reveals basically two paths that we can go by. Uh, we have the blessed path. We have the perilous path. We have the righteous path. We have the wicked path. And last week we spent a little time talking about the wicked path because a lot of times when we think of the wicked path, that doesn't apply to us. That only applies to the real bad guys. Uh, Adolf Hitler and company. But as we saw taking a closer look at the uh, passage uh, the wicked path is simply going through life without giving any thought to God at all. We don't think of it that way. But that's how the Hebrew uh, expresses it. So to go through life without really thinking about God, without thinking about his salvation or seeking his son Jesus, without thinking about the gospel, without including him in major decisions, to seek the counsel of the experts out there only, uh, 
uh, is the wicked path. Uh, that's a pretty scary thought, isn't it? And what has Jesus said? The way is what? That leads to destruction. It's broad. It's very broad. And those who are on it are how many? Very many. So, uh, in conclusion, last week, as we were thinking about these things, we observed that we are all sinners. And we observed that none of us have been found exclusively on the righteous path. As we're thinking about the righteous path and the wicked path, the blessed path, the perilous path, uh, at the end, in conclusion, we said, hey, um, we're all sinners. None of us are exclusively on the righteous path, are we? I mean, there are times, if we want to use the language of Psalm 1, there are times when we walk in the counsel of wicked, of the wicked. There are times when we lead others to sin and stand in the way of sinners. I know a sobering thing for me is this. As I think about standing in the way of sinners, I mean, anybody in the room who's done any level of parenting has had the joy and privilege of leading youngsters in the way that they should go. We've all had that privilege. But one of the sobering things to me, and the things that really bring me to my knees, is we've also had the dreadful experience of leading them off the path as well. Our vices are often passed on to our children. And in that case, we stand in the way of sinners. So what are we to do? Last week's answer is the same answer as this week, and it's the same answer that will be next week. We go to the cross, don't we? That's where we go. We go to the cross. Uh, the one who is under God's blessing is the one who goes to the cross. We're going to see that again in Psalm 2. So I'll spare you a lot of the stuff I have written here. We'll just put it off till a little bit later. Secondly, Psalm 2 picks up where Psalm 1 left off. I think it's interesting, I don't know, some of you may know this, but there's a lot of evidence that suggests that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 actually were one singular composition once upon a time. There's some ancient um, Greek manuscripts that make reference to Psalm 2, very clearly making reference to Psalm 2 and calls it Psalm 1. Uh, there's also uh, other evidence that leads, I think, uh, probably correct, that these two psalms actually were one singular psalm. And thirdly, I, I want to point out a couple of ways that we could divide the psalm up, I think is very helpful. If you look at the psalm with me, uh, it, can be, it can be divided up into four little sections. I think it's helpful for us to do that. And many interpreters will call it four voices. Uh, they'll say that uh, verses 1 through 3 are the voices of the rebels by way of a narrator. And then verses 4 to 6 is the voice of the Father. Vo uh, verses 7 to 9 is the voice of the Son or the anointed, the King. And verses 10 through 12 return to the voice of the narrator, if you will. Uh, another interpreter divides these sections this way. He says verses 1 through 3 are the world that hates Verses 4 through 6 is the throne that consoles. Verses 7 to 9 is the decree that determines. And then the remainder is the gospel that calls. Uh, all week long, I toyed with a threefold division of the psalm. Uh, I, I kept toying with this. Taking verses 1 through 3, we see foolish rebellion. 
or foolish opposition, foolish rebellion. And then combining the two in uh, middle sections, verses 4 to 6 and 7 to 9, we see confident sovereignty. In the midst of all this rebellion, we see God is confidently sovereign in the, in the midst of all of this. And then the message at the very end of the psalm we're going to see is repent or perish. That's the message. Repent or perish. It's very simply that clear cut. Repent or perish. Now, uh, this probably would have worked wonderfully for an, introdu- or to, for an outline of this morning's message. But really from this outline, I, I, I have three observations really that I would... That, that, that I have that have kind of ebbed and flowed from this. And that's really what I want to flesh out this morning. And the three observations are this. Uh, Psalm 2 assumes that these rebels understand that they're rebelling against the Messiah. I'll flesh that out in a couple of minutes. That's the first observation I want to make. The second observation is whether we admit it or not, whether we confess it or not, whether we're willing to embrace it or not, the reality is Christ is the king to whom we all must answer. Whether we believe this or not, that's the reality. And lastly, Christ is calling all rebels to either repent or to perish. So in the time that we have this morning, let let me briefly flesh out each of these statements. Starting with the first, the psalm assumes that the rebels realize that they're rebelling against Christ. Why is that so important? It's, It's important because this, I've shared with you many times that when I first came to faith, I was so excited about Jesus. And this, I've shared this with you before. My theology was this, I mean, I never knew many of these things about Jesus that I was learning. And I thought if I just told people about Jesus, people would be all excited and they'd want to embrace him. And just all I got to do is just be as clear as I can. And people are going to come by the hordes. I mean, this is such wonderful news. They're all just going to come by hordes uh, wanting to embrace this. And some of you are smiling. Yeah. Did I get a wake up call? Oh, did I get Oh, I got beat up bad in that music store. As I, I mean, people come in, want to look at things. I say, hey, you know about Jesus, you know? And I'd be telling people about Jesus. And oh boy, did I get clobbered. If you look at verses one and two with me, what's going on there? Nations are raging. Peoples are plotting. Kings of the earth are setting themselves. Rulers are taking counsel together against who? Against the Lord and against his anointed. And what we have here is a universal rebellion against the Lord and against his anointed. It's universal. Every walk of life is described. If you're a ruler, you're in. If you're not a ruler, you're in. If you're just a common person, just a common garden variety person like myself, you're in. It's universal rebelling against who? Against the anointed. In the Hebrew, you all know the word. You all know the Hebrew word that's being translated anointed. Everyone in this room knows it. It's the Hebrew word Mashiach. 
You don't pronounce it that way, but you know the word. You pronounce it Messiah. When Mashiach comes into English, it comes into English as Messiah. And you also know the Greek word. Mashiach is brought into the Greek language as Christos. Christos is brought into the English language as Christ. Who are they rebelling against? They're rebelling against the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. That's the covenant name, right? That's the name Yahweh, the I Am. And against his Mashiach, against his Messiah, against his anointed, against his Christ. And the psalm assumes that they realize what they're doing. Now let me quit using they and let me start using we. We as unbelievers are rebelling against the Lord and against his Messiah. And we fully realize what we are doing. Now notice verse 3. Verse 3 comes right out and tells us what they're saying. What they're, what they're endeavoring to achieve. They say let us burst their bonds apart from us. That is let us burst Yahweh's bonds apart from us. Let us burst the, the Messiah's bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What does all that mean? Uh, Alec Montier in his translation, he's very helpful here. He translates the verse, let us tear apart their restraints and throw off from us their bondage. Uh, that may be helpful to some of you, but I think what's most helpful, and I discovered this this, this week, uh, if, you, if you keep your place in Psalm 2 and go back to uh, Luke 19, and you see the triumphal entry, which we basically read this morning as our call to worship, as our opening passage of Scripture, if you back up to, to verse 11, that begins a parable that Jesus tells. The parable of the ten minas. What is interesting about this, and keep in mind when the gospel writers write, where they place these stories, the placement of these stories, have a lot of significance. I think it's quite interesting that Luke puts the parable of the ten minas right before the triumphal entry. And Jesus prefaces this parable with the words in verse 12. He says, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned. Do you see that? Now, if you skip verse 13 and you go to verse 14, Jesus says, but his citizens, what? Hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over. Now, this has been my discovery this week. I can't help thinking that Jesus had Psalm 2 in mind when he told this parable. He's descending down, he's going to descend down the Mount of Olives to a people who are raging against him. They're raging against the Lord's anointed. He's descending down the Mount of Olives to a people who are going to kill him. And this is the prayer of the rebel. The prayer of the rebel is we do not want him reigning over us. And 
this is where I went wrong in the music store all those years ago. I didn't realize, even from my own life, that there was that much hatred towards Jesus. It's usually expressed in indifference. You know, it's like, okay, it's not, not like I hate Jesus. I just really don't want him running my life. You know, he can do whatever it is that he does, and I'm going to do whatever it is I do. The, the, the Bible describes that as hatred. You've got to get rid of him in order to run your life your own way, you know. You've got to get rid of him to do that. You have to bury him so far back in your conscious somewhere. It's almost as if he doesn't exist. That's hatred. That's raging against him. I mean, as believers, this is our problem. We don't want him running our lives. Listen, everyone, get it in your heads. Being a believer is not about believing that Jesus exists. Everyone knows that. The psalm assumes that. We know that. The psalm doesn't start off saying, well, let me tell you about the anointed and uh, let me explain to you the anointed. No, the psalm already assumes you, you've got this one. The problem is we don't want him running our lives. That's the issue. And that's the fundamental difference between a believer and an unbeliever is submission. That's the difference. Not whether he exists or not. Oh, I mean, as unbelievers, we, we know he exists. As unbelievers, we pray to him, especially when we need something, usually only when we need something. We'll come to him, we'll fall down to him, we'll pray to him, we'll call on him to give, what, give us whatever it is that we want or whatever it is that we need. And as soon as he gives it to us, it's back to business as usual, as if nothing ever happened. As unbelievers, I mean, our flesh wants a genie in a bottle. But a Christ with a crown, no thank you. We despise a Christ with a crown. So Psalm 2 assumes that we realize what we're doing. And that leads us to my second observation. Whether we're going to admit it or not, the reality is Christ is king. Whether we, we can bury this information back as far as we want, but that's not changing the reality, is it? You know, it's like the ostrich that buries its head in the sand. You know, it perceives danger coming, so it buries its head in the sand. Is that keeping it safe? No, it's leaving its big butt hanging out to do whatever you want with, isn't it? So my second observation is whether we'll admit it or not, the reality is Christ is king. What is God's response to this massive rebellion? Look with me to verse 4. He who sits in the heavens, what? He laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. In other words, the rebellion is foolish. It's silly. Why is it silly? Because God has appointed his king. I mean, for a period of time, the father will tolerate this rebellion. But look at verse 5 with me. I mean, for a period of time, he'll tolerate this rebellion. It's a period of time known only to him. But verse 5, then, see the word, then? Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Here's the reality check. He'll tolerate this rebellion for a period of time. How long is that period of time? It's known only to God. But we must not presume upon that period of time. The time to repent is now, immediately. 
Uh, and here's the terrifying reality check. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. What is so terrifying? Verse 6, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. We can almost hear Peter, you know, at Pentecost preaching his sermon and saying, hey, fellas, you know, this, this, Lord, this Jesus whom you crucify, he's the king whom you're going to answer to. Whether we realize it or not, that's the reality. The Lord has ordained his king. And now in verse 7, the king himself speaks. Look, I will tell of the what? The decree. There's no possibility that this decree can't come to pass. Simply not possible. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. The New Testament over and over again applies these words to Jesus. We can think of his baptism, you know, by John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. And as he baptizes Jesus, a voice from heaven calls out and says, This is my beloved what? It's my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We can think of the story of Jesus' transfiguration where he goes up on the mountain and he's transfigured. And again, a voice from heaven says, This is my beloved what? My beloved son, listen to him. And uh, we can think of the Apostle Paul. He gives us a divine commentary on these words in Acts 13. In verse 30, Paul says, God raised Jesus from the dead. And for many days, Jesus appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. The New Testament applies these words to Christ. So this is the reality check. The Lord has ordained his king. He has appointed his king, and that king is Christ. Um, and whether we admit this or not, Jesus is reigning supreme. And as king, he will rule the nations. Look at verses 8 and 9. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is the reality. We're out of touch with reality while we're ignoring this. We're just completely out of touch with reality. But now let's bring in the last observation. Christ is calling out to all rebels to repent or perish. In verse 10, you'll notice the voice changes again back to the narrator. Applying a little theology to this verse, we can conclude that it's really the voice of the Holy Spirit at this point. How do I come to that conclusion? Because it's, the New Testament teaches that it's the work of the Holy Spirit to apply the gospel to our lives and our hearts. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to apply the message of the gospel to our hearts. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to apply the message to our hearts. And the Holy Spirit here is saying, now, therefore. Therefore is a conclusion word. It's concluding. It's the conclusion of what has come before because Christ is king and no amount of rebellion is going to change that. 
because it is, if this rebellion is left unrepentant, the result will be eternal uh, destruction. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is saying, be wise and be warned. Do you see that? Be wise and be warned. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and trembling. Verse 12, kiss the Son. What does it mean to kiss the Son? It means to submit to Him. You see, the idea of believing, as I said earlier, the idea of believing is surrender. It's submission. It's not simply believing that Jesus exists. We all got that. You can have that without a work of of any grace of any kind in your heart. That Jesus exists. The idea is ordering your life around that fact. That is salvation. That is that is the result of salvation. Because Jesus exists, I'm going to cling to him. I'm going to kiss him if we want to use the language of Psalm 12. Uh, what does it mean? It means to surrender to him, to submit to him. That his, that his will is now the will that you're going to attempt to follow. And I use the word attempt. Not a single one of us is going to do this perfectly. We're, we're going to go along the path. We're going to fall to the left. We're going to fall to the right. But the governing principle in our lives is going to be to try to endeavor to follow Jesus. That's what saving faith looks like. That's why faith changes our lives. Does that make sense? So kiss the son. It means to submit, to surrender. And you, you see, this is a call to Repentance. Again, I say this is the work of the Holy Spirit because I could preach to 100 people and I could preach this exact same message and I could call people to repent and perish. And, and 95 of those people pretty much ignore and ho-hum and yawn and look at their watch and can't wait for me to shut up. But five people will become stirred. You can sometimes see it on people's faces when the, works of, when the Holy Spirit's working on their hearts. and I'm always looking for that. And you can see them very visibly stirred. What's going on? Ah, the Holy Spirit's speaking to them. He's speaking to them. And he's flat out saying, repent or perish. That's the gospel call. Now let me tie this in with the triumphal entry. Why am I thinking about all this with the triumphal entry? Well, when Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, what is he riding on? He's riding on a colt. And that is highly symbolic. It's high, that, that, that detail is highly significant. He's not coming down the Mount of Olives on a war horse. That would mean he's coming in for judgment. He's coming down the Mount of Olives riding on a donkey. He's fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 for sure. But this is symbolic that Jesus, the king of the cosmos, the king of the universe, is descending down into the city of God to make peace. To make peace. And what does he do? He accomplishes peace. To make Psalm 2 possible. So that it's possible for us to kiss the sun. Because you see, it's really a glorious privilege to be given the, the opportunity to repent. That God would not just judge us and destroy us, but that he would come to us and condescend to us and say, here, I'm, I'm going to give you the opportunity to repent and come and be with me for all eternity. 
He comes to bring peace. Look at verse 12 with me one more time. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Look at that last sentence. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, remember the last thing I, I think the last thing I said last week in Psalm 1 was that Psalm, Psalm 1 begins with the word blessed and ends with the word perish. And then Psalm 2 picks up with this whole idea of rebellion, doesn't it? But Psalm 2 ends with what word? It's back to blessed again. Do you see that? And we can tie that all together. Who is the blessed man or the blessed woman? It's the one who's kissed the son. It's the one who's kissed the son. Have you kissed the son this morning? I'll never ask you a more important question than that question. And please don't become impatient with me for asking you that question. Have you kissed the son? Heavenly Father, we so thank you that you have held out your merciful hands to us. And we so thank you, Father, that there is salvation to be obtained simply by coming forward with our sin and calling on you to save us. And Father, I pray that you will keep us from becoming a church that thinks that these rudimentary things are things that we do at the beginning and then we don't have to do ever again. Well, Father, we must confess to you today that we are sinners because we will indeed and have already sinned today. And oh, Father, that, that grace is so wonderful. We thank you for that grace and we pray that you would continually apply it before us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.